Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn here and it's a windy day in Wiltshire. Hello, it's Richard Heller in south-east London, where it's appropriately sombre. Now, we have a, a very excited uh, about our guest. I've known him for 40 years, very famous political columnist who reinvented himself midlife to turn himself into a man of letters. He's written an incredibly number, number of really distinguished books on, on Edward VII, Thomas Carlyle, History of Late Victorian England, a sort of guide to the English language um, uh, and all kinds of other books, including most recently his very much celebrated edited version of the Chips Channon Diaries, which are unbelievably interesting and amazing even. Um, but the most important book he's written by far is his tele Daily Telegraph book of the 100 best cricket matches, published in 1990. He hasn't really done anything better than that. It's Simon Heffer. Thank you very much for joining us, Simon. Well, uh, Peter and Richard, thank you very much for having me. It's a, a great honour to be on this great podcast. First thing we need to talk about, I think, is um, the late Queen. I've been weeping intermittently ever since the um, news of her death came through. And, and Richard has been assembling some material on her life in, in cricket. Of course, it's a minor part of it, but to us, very important. It was. I think it's fair to say that um, cricket was not one of the Queen's personal passions. It's something that she followed, firstly, I think, for the sake of her husband, Prince Philip, who loved cricket. And there's a lovely picture of her as Princess Elizabeth actually following uh, a match being played by um, by her husband. Um, but um, she attended cricket matches very dutifully, particularly in honour of the Commonwealth. And the MCC actually put out a very interesting list of um, all of her visits to Lords. She visited it 33 times, firstly as Princess Elizabeth to watch England versus um, South Africa in 1947. Um, to give an idea of how far back that was, that was before the Nationalist Party even had come to power. And she made her last visit in 2013 when she saw an England versus Australia test. I know that for all visiting teams, it was a, very much a highlight of the tour to be presented to the Queen. And um, many cricketers have sort of attested to that. One of the most memorable was, um, was a meeting she had was with Dennis Lilly, not in fact at Lord's, but in the Melbourne centenary test. If you may, you may remember Simon, um, Dennis Lilly actually took out his autograph book and um, asked her for a signature, <laughs> and she refused at the time. The courtier said the quickly to Lilly she doesn't ever sign anything um, on request. But um, days later, Dennis Lilly got a signed photograph of the Queen um, at her personal More request. More just not just that the signed photo of him with the Queen, that a photograph mm. of her meeting the Queen at that event. Yes, yes, you're right, but which is very, um, very considerate. And Dennis Lilly has said uh, it's one of his most treasured souvenirs of his cricket career. Well, I suppose there are people who would argue that um, football uh, is as much a Commonwealth game as cricket. But actually, you know, we all know, don't we, that cricket is the game of the Commonwealth. And it's something that really binds us together, whether you go to watch it you know, sitting in the Rude Boys stand in Antigua or whether you're at the MCG watching cricket. It's the same game. It's played by the same family of people. And we all understand how it's one of those things that binds the Commonwealth family together. And I get very cross when I hear people say, oh, the British Empire was just an, an unrelieved source of evil. I didn't dispute the British Empire did some bad things, but uh, it gave cricket to quite a lot of the world. Um, it's now providing, I think, one of the biggest businesses on the Indian subcontinent, um, which uh, I know many Indians are grateful for. So um, I just think the Queen un understood that. And even if she didn't like cricket very much, and I used to see her um, you know, years ago coming to Lords uh, to shake the hands of test teams, even if she didn't like cricket very much, she understood its 
uh, if you like, moral purpose within the Commonwealth and its symbolism within the Commonwealth. And when you've got the head of the Commonwealth there superintending everything, I think it was rather a wonderful sensation. Couldn't agree more, Simon. Richard, why don't you tell, as your listeners, I think they might be interested in uh, our conversation with Said Ahmed, um, uh, who, of course, met the Queen in private. Uh, and he was a, he had the best cover drive any batsman's ever had, I should think, uh, Said. And wh- what did he tell us? Well, we, Said Ahmed is a Pakistan star batsman of the 50s, 1960s. He told us he'd had a private encounter with the Queen when she came to see England versus Pakistan in, in 1967 at Lords, And um, first of all, he asked her directly what she'd remembered about um, Pakistan from her state visit in 1961. And she, after a moment's thought, replied, I think probably accurately, cricket and horses. Uh, but uh, she, Said then claimed that... Um, She'd given him a sort of personal invitation to drop in on Buckingham Palace whenever he was next in England. Looking at the list of uh, teams that she did meet, first one she ever met as sovereign was India, 1952. Uh, she met all of um, the other test-playing countries with the exception of um, Sri Lanka and Bangladesh. And uh, more recently, she she never met... Um, the Irish at Lords and Afghanistan haven't played there yet, but otherwise she did. Um, she did all of them, and um, uh, as we've said, all of their cricketers have very strong memories of it. Yes, I thought it was a real shame. I was at that Test match when Ireland played at Lords, which I thought again was a was a great diplomatic moment, and it was a terrible shame that she couldn't uh, at least have dropped in, because her visit, which we all remember to to Ireland in two thousand eleven was so enormously significant. As she said herself, she was there, the centuries of um, uh, conflict and unpleasantness and misunderstandings between us, which it's insane for two such close neighbours to have. Um, uh, She she wanted to do all she could to repair them. And she did a fantastic job on that trip in uh, in smoothing over um, uh, some pretty ghastly memories of, of the past. And it would have been wonderful had she been there. And I hope the King, uh, when Ireland go to Lords next year, will take the opportunity of going and shaking the hands of uh, the Irish team and saying how welcome they are here. And again, it's a way that sport can help uh, patch up quarrels. I mean, you know, our quarrel with Ireland is a very serious, long-running and very nasty one at times. But it would be brilliant if if that game could be used uh, as a way of bringing our two countries much closer together. I completely agree with you, Simon. Now I might just broaden the conversation. I first, you will have forgotten, I first met you almost 40 years ago at a cricket match. Then um, you became briefly the Telegraph's cricket correspondent, did you not, in in Australia before going on to write your your book about the 100 best cricket matches. Um, So you have an enormous um, cricketing hinterland. Tell us how you see this year's developments with the 100, the plans of the ECB to reduce the uh, the size of the championship uh, and so on? I don't believe the 100 is cricket. I'm sorry. Uh, I mean, you, it's a form of entertainment. It's a circus. It's a prostitution of the greatest game in the world. And I don't know what the ECB thought they were doing in introducing it. I, well, I know what they thought they were doing. They were hoping to develop a franchise that they could sell around the world. But they're too late. I mean, the Indians have already co- cornered that market. You know, the IPL is the most brilliantly successful uh, short-form cricket game. It at least has six ball overs. It does bear some resemblance to the game that we all grew up with. I mean, I wouldn't watch it. I'd rather put my head in the mixer for an hour or two than go and watch a game of T20, to be honest with you. Um, but at least it does bear some resemblance to cricket. The 100 is just preposterous. Um, and I, I can't see any other country anywhere on earth wanting to buy it. I don't know whether, I don't know whether the ECB hoped that Amer- the Americans would buy it because you know, the Americans don't do the duodecimal system. And they might have found it difficult to compute you know, multiples of six or something. I don't know. But um, no one's going to buy it. 
Uh, I know they've sold it to television for uh, the next six years. Uh, I imagine if it lasts that long, that'll be it. And they'll look for some other uh, way of making money. But I don't know. I've been, I, I write a monthly column in The Telegraph about cricket. And um, I'm afraid they were about the last five years or so. Most of those columns have been devoted to my um, increasing incomprehension of how stupid the ECB is capable of being. And, okay, there's been a huge um, uh, upheaval there. Most of the people that I thought were a, a joke and a disaster uh, have had their P45s. But um, at the moment, and you mentioned a moment ago the plans or possible plans to reduce the county championship um, in this Strauss review, uh, all eyes are on the ECB now to see whether they've actually learned anything from past mistakes or whether they've just had one group of idiots being replaced by another. Um, as far as I'm concerned, having seen the 37-page so-called document, which again looks to me like a glorified spreadsheet, um, I'm not wildly optimistic. Do you think, Simon, that the ECB actually understands cricket at all and has any kind of feeling or responsibility towards the game of cricket? Or is it just behaving like an, just another corporate board of another not terribly successful middle-sized business, um, casting around desperately for some way to sell the product. Richard, I think that's a very, very astute observation. I don't think they do get cricket at all. They certainly don't understand um, the sort of people, and I think we're all in this category, who are members of a, of a cricket club and who want to go and watch proper cricket. And by proper cricket, I mean cricket played with a red ball. Um, where at some stage a captain may have to decide whether or not to declare, and uh, where it's not about going in and having a slog fest. It's about going in and building an innings and ensuring that over three or four days you can grind down the opposition and, and win. It's like a very long game of chess. I don't think the ECB gets that at all. I think it finds that sort of cricket completely preposterous. Um, and... You know, I think the ECB has gone, has is in, it's not yet out of it, in its Gerald Ratner phase. <laughs> um, I think if you sat down and yes. said the official, well, what do you think of first-class cricket? They'd say if they're being truthful, well, I think it's crap. <laughs> or rather, like poor old Gerald Ratner did about his uh, his jewellery. And, um, we need and to he, have... went, he went down the tubes very shortly afterwards from memory, yes. Yeah, he went down the tubes. I mean, I have been fighting in my columns with this paradox that we have the ECB constantly saying, we've got to have a great test team. Test cricket is the pinnacle of the game. They're absolutely right about both things. And then they destroy the nursery for test cricketers, which is first-class cricket. No one ever became a great test cricketer by playing the 100, and no one ever will. It's nonsense. And, you know, we had a test match at Lord's uh, a couple of weeks ago that if, if half the first day hadn't been rained out, and if the overrate hadn't been so abysmal, would have finished within two days. Now, that's where Test cricket is going. And we've already got countries who are don't really want to tour here, which is astonishing, and certainly don't want us to go and tour there because they can't afford it. Test cricket is already showing early signs of dying out. It has been precipitated to that, partly by governing bodies such as the ECB, of course, the IPLs had a role in this. I mean, we do have to face up to the fact that, uh, again, the Indians very cleverly have devised a form of the game that people absolutely love and that is draining away from the first-class game uh, cricketers of great talent. And instead of running up the white flag and surrendering to that, which is what the ECB and other governing bodies have done, they've got to look more intelligently for a modus vivendi where both forms can exist. And again, I've been saying for a long time, thinking of rugby league and rugby union, if you like, that there has to be two codes. You have to have people who play first class cricket. You have to have people who play limited over cricket. Um, there's no reason why the same clubs at county level, for example, can't uh, have those two sides and use uh, the, the more popular form of the game, which I don't dispute is um, uh, white ball cricket, to subsidise red ball cricket. Uh, it's what publishers do. Publishers publish very long and difficult and hard and chewy books of the sort I write as a historian. And they also publish 
you know, um, uh, you know, books that we wouldn't be seen dead reading. I remember going to see my publisher about ten years ago. We'd taken out for lunch, and in a case, uh, in a display case at the front of their office, um, along with uh, one of my very chewy history books, was Fifty Shades of Grey. And he said to me, "Look, isn't it wonderful? We pornography <laughs> to, to subsidise you. Well, terrific." You know, let's operate on the same principle in cricket. Uh, let's use the pornography of T20 cricket because the hundred isn't going to exist for now much longer. L let's use the pornography of T20 cricket and I know also 50 over cricket, which I don't despise, and use that to raise the money to have um, you know proper first class cricket because otherwise there won't be any test cricket. Now, can I um, pick? It's a bit of a hobby horse of mine, but. Uh, I'm very struck by how many cricket writers have been very slow to point this out about the hundred, that it was this game that destroyed the game of cricket, and um, including, I'm afraid, the Telegraph, yourself accepted, but I mean, are the other papers as well. And what you see here is that is something you see in political mainstream political reporting that they that journalists are dependent on their sources and their access. And if you look in particular at the hundred, which is a rubbish. A form of cricket um you know sky uh, uh, and the bbc sponsor it and if you listen to the commentary on the bbc you know there's nine runs needed or four overs with eight wickets left and you're being told by the commentator uh you know what a frightening incredibly exciting finish it is you're just uh, and it's very patronizing to listeners and viewers where that, that, that you're being told something's exciting when it's when the game is clearly over yeah, uh, and they're not trying to tell you about the game; they're trying to market you something. It's a form of propaganda. Yes, and you know, I must defend the Telegraph. I think the Telegraph has not been enthusiastic for the hundred. I mean, I, I obviously I defend my own newspaper. I don't think it's been uh, protective of the hundred. I think it has pointed out. I mean, certainly there, there was a very large piece in the Telegraph, as there was in other papers the other day, showing the implosion of viewing figures. Mm -hmm. The hundred, the novelty's worn off. I mean, you've got twenty percent down this year; it'll be fifty percent down next year um, because people realise it's rubbish. I mean, I've never been to a hundred match. I was paid to watch one on television when it started, <laughs> and very nearly lost the will to live. My uh, so my youngest son, who's an associate member of MCC, was a very good schoolboy cricketer himself. Told me he was going to a uh, hundred match at the Oval last season when it started, and. I said, well, why are you wasting your time doing that when you could be robbing a bank for eating or something more enjoyable? I mean, what's going on? And he said, oh, well, I'm going with some mates. We'll have fun. And uh, I said to him the next day, well, how was it? He said, well, actually, I can't remember. <laughs> what we didn't realise, we turned up at whatever time it was, half past five or something, um, and there was a women's match, first of all. So we went off to the bar. And by the time the, men, the men's match had started, we were so slaughtered. We didn't really watch anything <laughs> Well, I think you are wrong. That's about not about. Sorry, I was just going to say that is not um, the response the UCB were looking for when they promoted a, a, what, the hundred as a family-friendly competition, and latterly when they've been claiming it's been so good for the women's game. <laughs> well, it may be. By the way, I think Peter's about to tell me off about women's cricket. I <laughs> love the idea of women playing cricket. I I have watched it, and I suppose it's because I'm not really that engaged with the personalities that are playing it. Um, I don't find it as gripping as men's cricket, but then that's the cultural thing. But look, I'm never going. No, to... my 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 idea, Simon, is this: that they actually it has been glorious for men's cricket, undeniably. Why don't they? What they should do is simply confine the hundred, make it a women women's tournament, and leave it, and, yeah. and then go back to 2020 blast, which actually was a very successful yeah. enterprise. Uh, and that, that that's my thought, really. No, I think that's a I think that's a uh, a very good thought, but I mean just to return to the the media's role in perpetuating this abomination, um, and I'm not going to name the names because I don't want to get libel writ. Of course, the number of the people who write so um, elegantly uh, about the, the hundred and this so-called cricket format are also um, transferring a large amount of money from Sky Television, who are showing it. And again, you don't cut the throat of the, the, the goose um, that's laying all the eggs for you, do you? you um, uh, a lot of people are compromised because they have two jobs. And uh, I hope that you know, maybe this time next season, when the viewing figures are even lower than they've been this year, 
um, that people will say, well, actually, it's it's a joke, and then go on to look at the other consequences. I have to say that um, the uh, Andrew Strauss has been a great disappointment, hasn't he? You thought he would be a um, love the game and understand it, instead of which he has been the prime mover and defender for this abomination. But the minute you take the ECB shilling, that goes with it. You have to do that. Uh, I mean, I don't blame Andrew Strauss. I think he's rather an admirable man in many ways. I think he's, particularly his charitable work now, since his poor wife died, has been mm -hmm. absolutely magnificent. Uh, and I defer to no one in my admiration for that. And he was a great cricketer. But, you know, he's decided to take the ECB shilling. And the ECB have obviously said, right, um, first of all, the 100 is cricket. And second, it's really good cricket. And third, it's the future of cricket. And fourth, it won't damage what you might once have thought of as proper cricket. So go out there and sell it. You know, and this, if I may say so, brings us on to MCC, of which I have the honour to be a member, and I've been a member for many years. Um, MCC, of course, won't say a word against the 100, even though I don't think I've ever met an MCC member who can countenance going to watch a game of it. I'm sure that's because I haven't met the right MCC members. But, you know, I get these bulletins from Lords on Saturday mornings uh, during the season telling me about this wonderful competition that we're all be so excited and must cancel everything else we're doing to go and watch it. I mean, as I say, I'd rather put my head in a mincer. And I, I really don't understand why MCC don't just come clean and say, look, we're desperate to suck up to the ECB because we need two tests a year at Lords. And if that means prostituting ourselves and saying that this absurd form of a game is actually anything resembling cricket, then we'll just go ahead and do so. And I don't think that's MCC's job. I know they've got a big asset that they've got to service, but um, you know, they can do that in other ways. They've never sought to market, and this goes for the whole of the ECB as well, they've never sought to market in my lifetime first-class cricket. They've always looked for stunt cricket of one sort or another, from the Gillette Cup onwards. And I mean, sadly, we're all old enough to remember the early days of the Gillette Cup, which was a magnificent competition compared with some of the rubbish that's played now. Actually, it was a very good competition, it really the was. Gillette Cup. Oh, yeah. 60 overs aside, you know, in the days when you could go to a cricket match and get 120 overs bowled uh, and um, still, be, you know, still be leaving the ground at seven o'clock. It was a really good competition because it, it, it not only guaranteed a result, but it was long enough for people to go and play proper cricket. And one of the first games I can remember, I was five years old, watching on television, because I, I grew up with an obsession with cricket from my earliest memories, is Geoffrey Boycott scoring a century in the 1965 Gillette Cup final. Mm. Uh, and uh, you, know, you tell people that now, they won't believe you. Geoffrey Boycott, one day cricket, forget it. No, he was very good. Simon, I'd like to go back for a moment to your comparison with publishers. Publishers and the fact that they cross-subsidise um, their serious list with what you call, you know, pornography and the, and the popular list. Uh, that's certainly true, but it's true, isn't it? The publishers still try to promote their serious list and market it, whereas it seems to me that the ECB, and as you, latterly, as you say, the MCC, aren't trying to promote what you might call their serious list at all. Yeah. Um, they want it to be extinguished. Of course. I mean, obviously, publishing is a business. They're all in business to make money, and they have to be very careful. But publishers pride themselves on a reputation. And, you know, a publisher loves to turn around and say, well, you know, we publish Sir Ian Kershaw or Simon Sharma or any of the other sort of world historical great historians that you've heard of. They love doing that. Um, and I hope that those gentlemen's books sell well enough for them to, to wash their face. Um, but a lot of history books don't. Uh, I mean, I won't, again, no names. I am reviewing an absolutely brilliant history book at the moment, which I think about three people will read. Um, not because it's rubbish. It's an absolutely brilliant book, but it's so dense and it's so obscure. Um, but it's a wonderful work of reference. And any PhD student in the, the next hundred years who wants to uh, research this particular subject will have to read this book. Is it going to make any money for the publisher? Certainly not. So thank God that that publisher, you know, publishes Fifty Shades of Grey <laughs> and um, subsidised these very reputable historians because it's all about the reputation of the firm. Now, the ECB is the firm. It has a reputation. Does it want to have a reputation simply for uh, providing 
pornographic opportunities for the heart of understanding? Or does it also want to provide really intelligent games of cricket that you can go to for three or four days and really be absorbed by? Now, I know the answer to that question, so do you, but they don't seem to get it yet. And I don't know how far things have got to go. I don't know whether it's going to take, I don't know, a really serious test-playing country like South Africa to ring up in a couple of years' time and say, actually, we're not coming because we can't get together a decent test team because we're all playing T20. I don't know. Simon, during the um, season, as you probably saw, saw in the county championship, um, Sam Northeast of Glamorgan scored a quadruple century, joined a very, very select club. Yeah, it was an absolutely, it was an absolutely astonishing match in which Glamorgan, his county, were able to win um, by an innings after conceding a first innings of five hundred and eighty-four to Leicestershire. I mean, that seems to me, you know. County cricket, first-class cricket at its best, with all the drama and all the variety you could you could ask for. Absolutely, and there's been no there's been no attempt to market that at all, has there? No, I mean the ECB seem to think that the public are morons. Now, you know, those of us who have worked in the media all our lives know that the public actually aren't morons. I have enormously intelligent readers who write to me and email me whatever I write about. And I have great respect and regard for them. And I just wish that the ECB had some respect and regard for the British public. It clearly thinks the British public is entirely moronic, that if it's faced with um, uh, a competition of more than, uh, let me do my arithmetic, 16.4 overs per innings, if it's faced with anything more than that, it's not. Then no one will pay attention to it. I don't dispute that, you know, since we were all young, since we were at school and going off with our packets of sandwiches to watch three-day matches in the school holidays, which is my happiest... Filling in the scorecard, Simon. Filling in the scorecard with our autograph books clutched in our hands like Dennis <laughs> Lilly, you know, going off and, you know, I was I was a junior member of Essex and um, I didn't I didn't know anybody who ever managed to get Keith Fletcher's autograph. He just went <laughs> away. And it was, oh, he never signs. You know, he never signed for me anyway. But, you know, I know that since those days things have changed. I know that, you know, people have computer games and PlayStations. But if you confront uh, young people of either gender with serious cricket and try and explain to them why it's riveting, why it's fascinating, why that game in which North East scored a quadruple century is so remarkable and what a privilege to have that this season... You know, people can pay attention for more than 16.4 overs and get into it. And again, it's just not marketed. Nobody tries. And that, of course, takes us to the issue of we all grew up watching Peter West presenting test matches on television, which no one does now, not just because dear old Westy is no longer with us, but unless you subscribe to Sky, which a lot of people can't afford to do or don't want to do, you don't see proper test cricket on television. And um, when I think of all the school holidays I spent watching test matches on TV, because uh, there was no way living in the south of England I was going to be able to go to Headingley or Old Trafford or even Edgbaston um, with, with great ease until I was an older teenager. Um, it really, you know, as a boy of eight or nine, it really sucked me into to high-level international cricket. And that's not available now for most people. I, can I move on the uh, subject? Uh, saying with uh, the MCC, though, um, there's going to be a very important vote, I think, uh, in about two or three weeks' time, in which the MCC will be getting rid of the Eaton Harrow um, annual fixture, which has been a feature of English cricket for, what, two, since 1805, I think. Yeah. Um, do, do you see the necessity for that? That, the, you know, the, the cricket's got to move on into the into the 21st century, Simon? Well, I mean, you know, you and I are speaking on a day when our new king is um, being proclaimed at St James's Palace by the Garter King of Arms. I mean, that could have been done over the internet, couldn't it? But we still did it. And of course we did it, because um, uh, it's something we've always done. It represents the continuity of an old country. I think it's disgraceful. Not just that MCC have done this, but they did it by fiat. And they know they behave badly, which is why they've had to concede to this SGM. And it's not just the Eaton and Harrow match. 
it's the Oxford and Cambridge match as well. And you can, you know, you, you can hear what their PR people are saying to you. Well, you know, there's no women at Eton and Harrow. There's, you know, we haven't had a women's Oxford and Cambridge match at the same time. Um, they're all toffs. They're all privileged. Uh, you know, most of the people who play for the schools are white, etc. You can just hear all the stuff coming out about the what's now perceived as the negativity of this. And I just said, get on with it. Cricket's for everybody. You know, public school boys are allowed to play cricket as much as boys from, you know, back streets in North London are allowed to play cricket. And I think it's jolly nice if they can all have a chance of ending up at Lords. Uh, I Just to say, I'm sorry, these, these things are too elite. They're too socially exclusive. It's nonsense. Uh, and they are part of the history, not just of NCC, but of the history of English cricket. Now, I always thought MCC brags about its long heritage, founded in 1787, um, a year before Captain Cook discovered Australia. Uh, and they, they, they trade on that. You can't have it both ways. If you're going to trade on being the world's most um, venerated cricket club with a history going back nearly 240 years, and you're going to trade on the fact that you are the so-called home of cricket, then you don't start chucking up family silver, which is what they're doing. And as for this crackpot suggestion that, oh gosh, we've got 59 days cricket a season and the groundsman can't cope with it. Well, we've all proved, I've got a bookshelf full of wisdoms back there. Go back and look in wisdom. There was 70 or 80 days of cricket a season at Lords until not very long ago. And you know, this, is, this is just politics and it's nauseating politics. And I don't want MCC, I don't want cricket at all involved in politics. Everybody has a right to play cricket. And the history of the game is vital. And I will be voting in that SGM to preserve the Oxford and Cambridge match and to preserve the Harrow match. I um, mean, I went to Cambridge. I had two sons who went to Eton. So I've got a close link to, uh, to both of those fixtures. That isn't the point. Even if I had no connection at all with any of the institutions, I would still want those games to go ahead. Because they say something to me about the preciousness, and I mean that in a good sense, of MCC and about the preciousness of tradition and history in cricket. Now, you must have been at Cambridge, I'm rather reflecting, with Stephen Fry, um, who is now the president of the MCC. Yeah. Now, uh, that's a magnificent role to have. Is he showing any signs in, in getting involved in this issue? Because surely as president, he ought to. I don't know that he has, and indeed, to be fair to Stephen, uh, whom, of whom I'm a personal admirer and we know each other, um, to be fair to Stephen, I think probably it's not right for the president uh, or indeed the, the chairman to get involved in, in this sort of very contentious matter. I think that somebody's got to hold the ring. I mean, unfortunately, we've got a chairman who thinks that all the members who are protesting about this uh, spend most of the time emptying their colostomy bags um is he made that remark what is his name the chairman of the um mcc Carly Brown. and you know, again it's an astonishing remark to have made isn't it about uh he's bloody offensive actually um it's bloody offensive whether or not you've got a health problem that requires you to have a costlostomy bag you know or not um it's uh it just shows just shows the complete contempt that the people who run mcc have for the for the members and, you know, they know that a lot of people now wait 30 years to become a member. And they therefore, I think, think they can do what they bloody well like, um, because none of us is going to resign. Uh, I mean, I will never resign from MCC because my son, as I say, is um, a, a, an associate member. He will not, you know, before too he much. He plays for the club, does he? That no, he, he's, he's, uh, he, he comes and goes in this country, so he's not able to mm. uh, become a regular playing member. But you know, he'll become a, a, a member in, in due course. And I'm looking forward in my very old age to sitting in the bowler's bar with him having a pint of beer, if the club still exists, if cricket still exists by that stage, uh, as we understand it. And um, so I won't resign. But you know, I've heard of people who are. To go back to Stephen Fry, um, I, he's a genuine lover of cricket. And he has, again, a political view of the game that I don't share. He, he gave a lecture last autumn um, where he got very cross about the, the lack of wokeness in cricket. And if I may say so, I think that reflects somebody who's probably never been a, a serious member of a cricket team. Uh, you know, cricket teams are aggressive 
units, particularly where men are playing. Um, they have lots of hot-headed, headstrong young men in them who say abominable things to each other and abominable things about each other, um, but all go off and have a pint of beer afterwards. And uh, it's all forgotten. It's, you know, they, of course, people have caused offence and done bad things. And I'm not sitting here for a moment uh, excusing or condoning uh, any uh, element of racism in cricket. Yeah, we've got to, I, I remember once, Simon, playing cricket on the same size as uh, Dominic Lawson, who we both know. Yeah. <laughs> after we had a very murderous row on the cricket field, after which he accused me of headbutting him. Oh. Um, now I got I got a very long letter from Dominic. I, don't, I wish I kept it, <laughs> accusing me of all sorts of things. We're very we're reasonably good friends now. I mean, one does you occasionally one does behave badly on the cricket field, of course. And um, I think Stephen feels it's like a vicarage tea party. And that um, uh, is after you, Claude. Oh, no, after you, Cecil. And it's not like that. And, you know, men's sport, let's leave the women's game to one side for a moment. Men's sport has a lot of rough and tumble in it. And again, you know, if some of the things that are alleged to have been said to players of Pakistani origin at Yorkshire are true, they are disgraceful. And if people are punished for doing that, providing they actually did do it, then they get what they deserve. Um, but uh, just teasing somebody for um, not being a very good cricketer uh, and making people feel bad about themselves, well, I'm afraid that's team sport the world over. And you won't, it's like trying to close down a large section of human nature. It may be a very undesirable aspect of human nature, but you can't always get rid of it. On the other hand, you can defend it on the grounds that male, young males in particular, are full of testosterone and anger and sort of. Yeah. And if they can get rid of all of that on the cricket field or the rugby pitch or whatever it is, uh, it's better than, um, get, you know, being violent on the streets or, you know what I mean? Or... Well, I, I, entirely, I entirely agree. I mean, you know, it's, um, uh, you know, short of having, and I don't particularly want a war to send them off to, but short of having a war to send our young men off to, it's much better that they go and play competitive sport. And I say, if, if bad things are said from time to time, well, you know, c'est la vie, as we say in Essex. So, I mean, isn't there a distinction, as far as sledging and uh, such is concerned, isn't there a distinction between abusing somebody as a, for his sporting performance um, and abusing him for personal characteristics that uh, he can't help? Isn't that where the dividing line should be? I mean, if, um, yes. you know, you can't bat, you can't bowl, you can't field, that's been said to me many times over a career. But, um, you know, if somebody made... Um, um, you know, but, oh, Richard, do you remember we were playing in uh, it was it in 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 Mumbai, uh, and um, I was bowling my leg spinners, crucial moment in the game, and I seem to remember the ball heading in your direction in the air, and you managed to do great goalkeeping and tipped it over the bar for six. I think I was pretty abusive to you. It was in what's now called Chennai. Um, <laughs> it was in Chennai, was it? Yeah. Yes, it was it, which was then called Madras. Uh, it was an, I'd misjudged the ball, deep, deep mid-wicket. It's because of your vicious spin, it suddenly curved away from me. Um, I leapt up, I tried to grab it one-handed, and indeed succeeded in only in tipping it over in the boundary for a six. You've but got a year just... full, Richard, I can assure you then. Yes, I, I, got, an earful, I, got, I got an earful from you, but I, I was the hero of the, <laughs> the, the crowd at, at, at Chennai. They applauded every and cheered every time I touched the ball after that. So uh, it was very, uh, very mixed. Um, I was fined on that India tour for sledging myself because I've always been a very self-critical player and, uh, for, <laughs> for violent abuse um, uh, of, of my own performance. But uh, there we are. So I'm going to just spend a moment going back to the Eton and Harrow match. There's a very entertaining account of it in your um, ed edition of the Chips Channon diaries. He went to watch Eton and Harrow in um, 1927 um, didn't seem to enjoy it very much, and it seemed to have induced in him a mood of existential despair. Dear old Trips was an American. Now, of course, there have been some great American supporters of our great game, notably my dear and much missed friend, uh, J. Paul Getty. But um, there, are, um, uh, there are quite clear signs in Chips that, as with a number of social events that he attended over the 40 years that his diaries cover, 
Uh, he went not because he was particularly looking forward to them, but because he, he might need somebody interesting there. And mm. I, I fear he went to that particular uh, match, or at least to one day of it in 1927, um, and didn't run into anybody who, who tickled his fancy. And I think that was <laughs> why he found it rather desperate. Or maybe even worse, and I was saying that it's a couple of years since I edited that volume, um, and maybe even worse, he got there and found that there were people, shock horror, too interested in watching the game to talk to him, which yeah. he would have found which you would have found very shocking. Um, but I, I I don't know, I wish I could have... I'd like to have met Chips, obviously I'd like to have met him. I think he was, in some ways, a pretty ghastly human being, but in many others he was wonderful. And uh, I'd love to have sat at a cricket match with him in those early days when he's, uh, as it were, wasn't long off the boat. And um, to try and have educated him about the glories of cricket and to say, look, if you want to become uh, a proper bona fide Englishman, you're going to have to learn not just about the game, but learn to love the game, uh, which is what Paul Getty did brilliantly uh, and uh, couldn't keep away from it. And of course, we have Mick Jagger to thank for that because it was Mick who uh, uh, educated him in the game. And I just wish that there'd been a Mick Jagger figure in Chipsy's life who could have said, look, actually, if you try hard, <laughs> you'll enjoy it. <laughs> After all, he was of English descent. He originally came from Devon. Uh, well, he did, his family did. Um, it came from Oxford St Mary from memory uh, so cricket should have been in his DNA somewhere and uh, I just fear that uh, uh, he was he went there looking for something other than cricket and didn't find it Indeed. Is there any cricket in the third volume which I'm looking forward to which is just out isn't it can you remember any did he try again No he didn't try again but of course he is um, very closely romantically entangled in the third volume with Terence Rattigan who oh, was uh, a supreme mm. lover of the game, and um, I think who he did he open? Rattigan opened the batting with who in nineteen for Harrow in nineteen twenty eight in the Eton game. Was it Aidan Crawley? No, no. It was Victor Rothschild. Ah, oh, well, they are. What a what a team! What a team. He was dropped. He was dropped the following year, and a lot of um, a lot of people think that was. Um, a, great, a factor in his becoming a playwright and his writing so eloquently about despair um, because it had a very sharp effect on him. You make another point about why the Eaton Harry match is so important. Who knows what great historical figures you're seeing when you go and watch a game like that? You know, you sit there in 1928 and say, well, gosh, you know, he's going to be one of the most important men in the establishment. And here's Terence Rattigan. Gosh, what can we do? But I think I'm right in saying, and again, I, I, it's... Because of lockdown, I got I edited the Chairman Diaries much more quickly than I thought I was going to, because I was under house arrest for a couple of years, we all were. And unlike our Prime Minister, I didn't go out very much, or our ex-Prime Minister. Um, so uh, I didn't very quickly, and I, it's therefore quite a long time ago. But I think in Volume 3, um, Chips also writes about the time when Rattigan is writing his film, The Final Test, which mm. we've all seen with Jack Warner in it, aged about 70, <laughs> playing an England opening batsman. Um, Dennis Compton and Len Hutton in it as well. And obviously it gave Rashkin a chance to uh, hobnob with his heroes. Uh, so uh, it's a, it's another part of uh, Rattigan's character that poor old Chips can't quite grasp. Um, I, I mean, Chips himself was a pretty technicolour figure, but I think that uh, he found Rattigan incomprehensible in some measure because of all this. Mm, it's fascinating. You know what? Um, thinking of Chips as an American, having thinking of your wish to explain cricket to Chips, you, you recall what happened when somebody tried to explain cricket to Groucho Marx? No, remind me. Groucho was taken to the first day of a Lord's Test match. I think it was an Ashes Test. It might have been 1953. He's taken the first day. Um, they they watch the play before lunch. His host turns to Groucho and says, "What do you well, what do you think of it, Mister Marx?" And he says, "When do they start?" <laughs> he thought everything he'd seen was a sort of warm up. <laughs> um, uh, Simon, I mean, you ha you 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 notoriously uh, you were brought up in Essex and in fact created a a concept which is still around today, Essex Man, in that famous article you wrote in the. Uh, Telegraph, I think, in about 1985. Are you still an Essex supporter? Uh, technically, yes. I'm talking to you from Essex. Um, the trouble is, since I uh, grew up and had responsibilities, my time to watch cricket is quite limited. And um, I was a member of Essex until I became an MCC member. 
which was about 25 years ago. And I realized at that stage, I didn't have time to attend two uh, cricket clubs. And um, what I do now in terms of my cricket watching, I try to go to most days of both Lords test matches. And I always try to go to three or four uh, Middlesex matches, not all four days, but I try and go to a day or two of about three or four Middlesex matches. Um, and about, about once a year or so, I go on an excursion. I haven't been to Chelmsford to watch cricket for about five years. And you know we're all reaching an age where we're going to start winding down. I'm hoping my great old age um, that I will rejoin Essex. And um, if there's not a match on at Lords and I'm not in London, then I might toddle off to Chelmsford. But you know, one of the great um, attractions when I was a boy, as they say, about watching Essex playing cricket, other than the fact they had a really brilliant team, uh, you know, J.K. Lever, Graham Gooch, Keith Boyce. Um, Fletcher, of course. Fletcher, yeah. Ken McEwen. I mean, we had a really great Ken player. McEwen, wow, yeah, he was phenomenal. South African, uh, yeah. Uh, player. Um, we used to, you know, play cricket all over the county. And I lived quite near Chelmsford, which was enormous. I still do. It was enormously convenient because the county ground wasn't far away. But, you know, you had those treks out to... South Church Park at South End and Chalkwell Park at Westcliff and Valentine's Park at Ilford and the Castle Park at Colchester. Um, I even remember going to Leighton to watch cricket. I think I went to the last game at Leighton, which I think was 1974 or 75. You know, the ground where Holmes and Sutcliffe put on 555 for Yorkshire. Oh, that's where that happened, yeah. Uh, in 1932. I wasn't there for that, sadly. <laughs> but... Um, it was very intimate going to watch cricket at those outgrounds. And this is one of the things that we've lost. I mean, we, 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 we talked earlier about the reduction of the county championship briefly. I think there should be more county championship matches and not fewer. If you're going to have uh, yep. a, two divisions uh, of nine teams each, then they should all play each other home and away. So you have at least 16 championship matches. I think there should also be a final. And I think that if people want to come here and tour, they get asked to play at least three or four uh, of the counties. So if you have two touring teams a year, you get maybe half the counties getting a tourist match every year. And um, then you can take cricket to all parts of the county and you can encourage a wider audience for it. If you're, if you're down to, well, I think what the strategy wants, something like 10 or 12 matches a season, uh, then very you know, you're gonna, only going to have... A, maybe five or six home matches. Uh, and is it really going to be worth people joining a cricket club? Given a lot of these matches do finish... Because the, fr the franchises are based on some other sort of... It's basically neoliberalism in action, <laughs> deeply hostile to institutions, deeply yeah. hostile to the organic nature of cricket and just all about making a quick buck. Now, can, can, to move on, though, move on to... Um, I... Uh, want to urge something on you it's rather impertinently before he died i used to see a bit of um the doyen of political columnists uh really alan watkins yes and um i, uh, I still revere him i still miss alan actually he had such he's such a beautiful yeah. writer and he was planning a, a biography of ken barrington i feel that you know you should write a book on uh, cricket before You've written so many distinguished books in other fields, but there must be a cricket book in you, Simon, and I'd rather like... I think it would be well-read and liked. For the last 13 years, I've been writing a four-volume history of Britain from 1838 to 1939, uh, which I'm shortly going to finish. Uh, I also, as you have said, edited the Channon Diaries. Uh, and I'm ending my history at 1939 because... There have been so many brilliant histories of the Second World War written um, over the last 50 years. I mean, starting with Angus Calder's The People's War. Um, my friend Dan Todman, who's written two brilliant books on Britain during the, um, uh, the Second World War. And so I don't think there's any scope for particularly brilliant original scholarship on that period. But what I am contemplating doing, and I talked to my publisher about this, is writing a book on British culture from the outbreak of the Second World War to the Festival of Britain. And if I do that, um, the golden summer of Compton and Edrich in 1947 will be a huge part of it because, um, you know, that's an era when 
people were working extremely hard. We had full employment. And yet somehow Lords managed to be half full, even on a weekday. Um, the people going in, particularly later in the day, if they finish work early, uh, to watch these two magnificent batsmen uh, score between them, what was it, over 7,000 runs in first-class yeah. cricket. Yeah. In a score between them, I think, 30 centuries. Uh, and the game really captured the public imagination. And of course, the following season, Bradman's Invincibles come over here and uh, make 721 in a day at South Ed, at South Church Park, uh, against Essex. And I think that never at any time in recent history has cricket or even sport in general played such a central part in the in the culture of the nation. Uh, I think that it, for, for communities that had first-class counties around them, it presented a real focus for getting life back to normal after a very disruptive and very bloody war. And so in writing a book about the national culture in the 1940s, sport has to play a part in it. But, also, but I think cricket, not just because of my predilection for cricket, but cricket has to play quite a big part in that. And that summer is probably one of the most memorable summers in, in, in the English game. Simon, that sounds like a, a fascinating book, and it sounds like a um, particularly like a very apposite chapter on cricket. And uh, it would be wonderful if cricket could play that sort of central part in the nation again in the national culture, <laughs> in spite of everything that the ECB can throw at it. Um, but for now, thank you very much for joining us, and. Um, <laughs> We hope um, you enjoy the what's left of the rest of the cricket season. Well, gentlemen, it's been very good of you to ask me on this podcast. I really enjoyed talking about cricket uh, with two such well-informed and intelligent people. And uh, if you're desperate in a few years' time, please ask me back. We certainly will. <laughs> certainly will, Simon. It's, but it's going to be uh, sooner than two or three years, I can assure you, if that when that happens. And it's goodbye from me, Peter Oborn and the wind has died down in Wiltshire. Goodbye from me, Richard Heller. It's still a sombre day in South East London. Mm -hmm.